Welcome to The Real Photo Show. My guest today is Edwin J. Torres. But before we get to that, let me just tell you about the JKC Gallery's next show. Uh, It's a show about portraiture with 10 current and former students from Mercer. Uh, But the reception on August 2nd from 3 to 6 p.m. is in conjunction with the Summer Jazz Institute put on by the music program at Mercer run by Scott Hornick. So it should be a really fun day. We're going to have music and art and food trucks. Uh, So that's at 137 North Broad Street in Trenton, New Jersey. So I know this episode is a little later than usual. Uh, I think I had mentioned that on the last episode I was traveling to Rome and then working on this next show at the gallery. So everything got a little pushed back. Uh, The trip to Rome was fantastic. Uh, The reason why we went this summer is because my Cousin Jim is a Jesuit priest and he was teaching at the Gregorian for a few months. Uh, And so it was really a great opportunity to have somebody there who speaks the language and who knows all the great restaurants and is an amazing tour guide uh, who is well versed in art history. So Cynthia and I weren't exactly sure how our kids would do on an eight hour flight and, you know, traveling around Rome and trying different foods. But the truth is they did great. Um, You know, the flight was pretty easy because it's there's a lot of TV to watch. And when the menus were a little sophisticated for their palates, uh, there was always pizza and pasta. You know, that could not have been easier. You know, we made sure we scheduled things that were just for them. Uh, Some trips to parks that had some amusement rides. And Cynthia found a place called Gladiator School, which is probably a real tourist trap. But they loved it, so it was definitely worth it. I think the only thing that really... Uh, got to them was, um, you know, there were some pretty heavy-duty walks to and from different places to see. uh, But, you know, when the place had something interesting for them, some kind of, uh, you know, puzzle to the historical layers or something really interesting about the artwork, you know, and its visual impact, uh, they did fine. And when they were bored, they let us know. (laughs) But that's pretty much how they are everywhere. (laughs) All right, so a few episodes back, I had asked if you could give me a little bit of feedback, especially on iTunes, because it boosts your rankings uh, when you're searching for art podcasts or visual arts podcasts. Uh, and I noticed that, um, you know, my podcast was coming up beneath podcasts that had stopped uh, producing new shows a while ago. Uh, and some of you have, and it's been uh, fantastic. So thank you very much. I'd like to read you the last two reviews that I received this year. Uh, One is called The Real MFA by FLA70 on iTunes. Michael, who I have never met, connects and reconnects me to an array of new contemporary artists working through the lens and through photography, as well as many artists from the Photography Hall of Fame. I find the candor and openness to discuss personal histories informative, refreshing, reassuring, and inspiring. I think an alternative show title could be The Real MFA. Thank you, Michael and SVA, for sharing this podcast with the world. And thank you, FLA70. That was really quite nice of you to write. And I hope I can, you know, keep bringing both established photographers, established artists, and, you know, up-and-coming artists as well to the show. Um, it's it's a lot of work. Uh, it's kind of my third job. Uh, and, you know, that's why sometimes there are some, some big breaks in between. It just takes me a long time to edit the work as well, because I really... Uh, for those of you who who don't know, and hopefully you don't know, I do some heavy editing on these episodes just to 
tighten them up and, you know, remove spaces or maybe I've asked a bad question. It just goes nowhere. And so, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into this. Uh, and I really appreciate uh, the feedback. Um, and then the very last uh, review I received uh, in July was from Atratpat, A-T-R-A-T Pat, Atraty Pat. Uh, keep going. Very much needed oral history for the field of photography now and will be amazing archive in the future. Uh, and that actually was one of the one of the reasons for doing the show was to create an archive of what this community or small world of photography looks like right now. So thank you, uh, Atratipat. Uh, all right. So my guest again today is Edwin J. Torres. Edwin and I recorded this episode in his apartment at the Roebling Lofts. It was, I think, near the tail end of a show that he had curated uh, inside of uh, Roebling Lofts, inside their gallery. Uh, And this is all in Trenton, New Jersey. The show is called Trent Town, and we do talk about that on the episode. Uh, But then Edwin was also in the process of moving into his first house in Trenton, New Jersey. And one of the things we're going to talk about is Edwin's newfound love for New Jersey and in particular Trenton. Uh, And this has a lot to do with who Edwin is and and how he works and how he was raised and all that will come up in the episode. Uh, Let me just tell you a little bit about Edwin. Uh, He is currently the deputy digital director for Governor Murphy's office in New Jersey. Uh, Before that, he was a staff photographer for Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York City. And before that, uh, Edwin was a freelance photojournalist. In 2016, he was the lead photographer and contributed reporting in a Pulitzer Prize-winning story with ProPublica and The Daily News uh, for public service honoring their joint investigation on abuses in the New York City Police Department's enforcement of the nuisance abatement law. And we'll talk about that in the episode. Uh, He is a member of the Bronx Photo League, which is part of the Bronx Documentary Center, and is published in a book titled The Jerome Avenue Workers Project, which was published by the Bronx Documentary Center. All right, so this is my conversation with Edwin J. Torres, who is an incredibly hardworking and caring person and who has a great sense of community. Uh, Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening, and we will talk soon. Very garlicky. Oh, I'm glad you're uh, far away at the other end of the table. <laughs> <laughs> Dragon breath. <laughs> nice. We're at the Roebling Lofts, where you actually have a show up right now, right? Yep. Um, right now, we, Roebling Gallery, which is um, a part of Roebling Lofts, is exhibiting my work. It's called Trent Town. It's essentially a you know, a series of documentary photographs taking a close look at a lot of the different aspects of Trenton. The name Trent Town comes from when Trenton was originally founded by William Trent. Ah. Um, and it was it was more of a town. And I, I love to call it that because <laughs> Trenton is, it's a big city. It's the capital city of New Jersey, but it has a small town feel. So yeah. Once you know a few people, you know, you know everyone. Right. And that's great because it, it's very conducive for an art community here and and it's just it's a much slower pace so (laughs) you know i i'm originally from the bronx new york where life is kind of crazy and hectic and (laughs) moving here has been just such an amazing experience i mean 
the weekend comes around and I still want to stay in Trenton. Mm. I don't want to go back to New York. I don't <laughs> want to travel too far. I'm, you know, I'm happy being here and hanging out with the residents here and going out for a walk with my camera. There's a lot of things to do in this city. And, and I want to, a, a part of my mission is, I guess, outside of work is to put Trenton back on the map. It's a capital city. Many of the United States capital cities right now are like underwater or underprivileged yeah. and overlooked. But it's also very central to Philadelphia and New York City. If I wanted to, I can walk eight minutes, go to NJ Transit, and take a 65-minute train to Penn Station in New York City. Right. Or I can just take a 35-minute drive to Philly in the center city. So, you know, you're you're along these two amazing cities, and it's it's a great city with a great history. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our, that's, that's kind of, you just um, sort of mentioned it quickly. That's, uh, our connection is actually the Bronx Documentary Center, which I didn't even know until after we met at the gallery I run for the college, the JKC gallery. Mm-hmm. Is, I think, is that the first time we met? Was it at a show at the gallery? In the Bronx? No, here and in Trenton. Yes. We met here. It was here. Yeah, yeah. It was here. <laughs> and I was giving you my spiel that I give everyone when I first got here. <laughs> hey, I'm Edwin. I'm from the Bronx. I, That's right. This is awesome. This gallery you have going on. I, I did a lot of work with the Bronx Documentary Center and I, I really dig it. I'm glad that you're bringing a focus on photography to, you know, right to New Jersey and the Mercer County area. <laughs> yeah. No, that was it was uh, and you were like, oh, I know the Bronx Documentary Center. Exactly. I know Michael Camber. Yep. <laughs> I've been there several times. They do great work. <laughs> yeah, Michael was on the show, and uh, the other thing was you were talking about, you know, finding community here in Trenton, you know, and and reaching out to the community and and you know doing not necessarily what the BDC does, but doing something with students here and photography and right and started and I had just been thinking about something like that some kind of after school program some kind of community program when you approached me it was it was weird coincidence yeah I mean I I think that um our first conversation was every city needs a Bronx documentary center or (laughs) something like that yep (laughs) because we're at an interesting time where we're realizing, especially outside of the Bronx, um, a lot of other cities also need to have their stories told as well. There's a lot of potential that's often neglected. You know, a lot of the mainstream outlets, or, or there's not even mainstream outlets. A lot of the news outlets around here cover mostly crime and homicide watch and and whatever political failures are happening in the <laughs> local city hall and stuff. And they don't really cover the good. I mean, it, unfortunately, we're known for our mass shootings at art all night and right you know and at bars and stuff and um, and like you said the political failures trenton's known for a political failure the council is mm-hmm. always arguing and the mayors what and the corruption is happening and, right. and <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. you know something like having a bronx documentary center here would really just be a great form of outreach to the kids and the youth who yeah. need something else to do outside of school and can really learn a lot from just it just storytelling empowering themselves and you know being able to look outside of the box yeah outside of the day-to-day reality on the block and and realize that their stories matter their perspective matters and home is awesome they just need to see it from a different perspective yeah and and you went to uh, one of the many meetings <laughs> i've had trying to sort of launch this and and you got a little taste of um 
the kind of, uh, what's the word, um, the inertia that you're kind of up against to get something like this, at least for me, you know, trying to do it through the college. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Definitely. And it's not easy, right? I mean, um, the Bronx Documentary Center has like a very special start and mm-hmm. a team that's very dedicated. Yeah. And, it's, you know, the, I kind of, I think Bunny also called this out, but it was like an almost an informal grad school. You know? That's right. <laughs> um, I was part of the Bunny class. So Bunny and I, we would like oh. hang out there all the time and, you know, critique each other's work. We yep. would work on documentary projects together, interviews together. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just a, it was a great space. Oh, I forgot Still you were is. both in the same class. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, funny yeah. that we call it a class. Right. But, you know, <laughs> the group, right. The group. Um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I will, we'll circle back to your show here and, and you're, are, you are the, um, the director of the gallery here at the Rolling Loss, but, um, but I don't want to lose, uh, you know, lose track of what we're, we're talking about. You know, where did you, when did you first, uh, become interested in photography or documentary work? You know, what you do? Well, I, by the way, your dog is, has her head on my leg right now and it's wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I originally picked up photography or my first time exposure to video arts was in senior year in high school in the Bronx. I was was going to an all boys Catholic high school, all hollows on 164th street in Mm. Walton, right near the grand concourse. And our senior year class was media arts and we had to make films and learn editing and learn production and screenwriting and how to horrible acting. You know, we were our own <laughs> actors, which was really bad. Um, and so that senior year in high school, you know, it was just a great time to kind of experiment with video cameras and horrible, horrible acting. Um, <laughs> but really I can reflect back home. on that. Yeah, yeah it was... Yeah. <laughs> I reflect back on that and it's like, yeah, that's, those are the times when it's fun because, you know, you're a senior in high school. It's not necessarily easy to like become engaged to something that's not cool. Like what your friends are doing Absolutely, or, right. you know, your sidekick that just came out or, um, you know, the hip hop music that was out at the time, like, the, you know, so we were really engaging with this craft and I finished the class. I didn't think anything of it. Um, I went to college in Maine. I went to Colby where I, my degree was in American studies, um, so it was a mixture, interdisciplinary major of literature, history, art, and pop culture. Mm. And I remember within that program taking a film class, a film studies, cinema studies class. It was intro to film studies, and I was in the midst of writing my first or second paper when I told my professor I wanted to learn how to make films. Huh. And his name was Wurzler, Steve Wurzler. And Steve told me, why don't you learn how to take a photograph first? Um, Learn about exposure, composition, before you just start shooting films. Um, I was like, all right. So I, my Colby had a really dedicated photography program, dark room, traditional style, amazing workspace right below the Colby Museum of Art. And I took my first class. Um, I remember bartering with one of my classmates, uh, a digital point and shoot so that he would lend me his film SLR for that semester Ah. because you had to get your own camera. (laughs) So taking the class is just a magical process. The best part was seeing the image appear on, you know, on the print in the darkroom. Like the first time I saw that, I was like, whoa, this is like magic. Um, I love the smell. I love 
the patience. I love it. it was just a slow way of moving through something. I saw so much potential in the medium. I was like, wow, I can literally make anything appear on paper, you know, and that was the benefit. So it was pretty early on that you took to film. Yeah, I was like, I was like, it was like my sophomore year in college. Hmm. So I was like 20 and I stuck with it ever since. Every semester I would take a class, you know, photo two, three, four, five. We had a, (laughs) for January, we'd have like a month long project called Jam Plan. I would make those like around photography projects. I would play around with photo books, buy them on Blurb and um and you know sell them and (laughs) you know i would spend my winters in new york city shooting a lot of street photography and then go back to campus to like put a book together but you still stuck with american studies yeah that was still like my my major which was i think fundamental in making me a journalist in the long run i i I wasn't just a a fine art photographer although i could have easily been yeah um my, my my strength is in portraiture right but you know, my background in being an American studies major and being well-versed in literature, history, pop culture, um, the history of film got me really interested in the issues in America now and, um, and the power of representation. Mm-hmm. And the saying in American studies was uh, American history is the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. Mm. So I'm like, wow, that's, there's a lot of power then in representation and storytelling. So I graduated from Colby. I I took an insurance job because I was interning. Um, yeah, I, I come from a really like working class family in the Bronx. Yeah. And, you know, having a business internship was like the thing to do. And my mom wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer. Of course. You know, so when I graduated from Colby, I took a, a, an insurance job. It was my first job out of college. In the Bronx? Or? In Midtown, Manhattan. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was a great job. I learned a lot. I mean, my job was essentially to like learn how businesses work and how to write risk for it in insurance. So oh, interesting. that taught me a lot about how different businesses work, which yeah. eventually helped me survive as a freelancer years later. So I'd say, you know, a combination of being an American studies student, being a photo art student, working in the business world, all of those three factors. I remember I was working at Traveler's Insurance for two years and I would bring my camera with me every day Did to you? work. <laughs> I, would, I would shoot in the morning, I would shoot at lunch and I would shoot <laughs> after work. And then I would go home and develop. Hmm. Always after college, I just stuck to 35 millimeter because it was just easier. Right. But, you know, in college I learned every, a little bit of everything. But yeah, I, I remember going to work and like just opening up the New York Times every day and thinking, wow, like I can be anywhere in the world. Instead, I'm in this cubicle, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and eventually it got to the point where, you know, I started volunteering at the Bronx Documentary Center. My first exposure to that place was the opening exhibition of um, Seister Sul, which so you, was you didn't start there as part of the uh, the photo league or anything like that. You started there as a volunteer. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yep, I, I, I found, I heard of the Bronx Documentary Center through Facebook. I saw they were having an opening on, you know, photos of the Bronx in the 70s, the burning Bronx, and they were by a collective called Seis del Sul, uh, which means Six of the South. It's a group of 
six New Yorican photographers, mm, Puerto mm. Ricans from New York. Right. Um, of which you are. <laughs> yes. Um, but these were guys I could really look up to on how Franco was, oh, Angel you know, Franco. a longtime staff photographer with the New York Times. Yeah, David he was, Gonzalez was a columnist. I used there. to run into Angel Franco when I was stringing and, and doing freelance journalism. And he was basically, he was a god in the, the, journal, the photojournalism world. Yep. Ricky yeah. Flores, a longtime journalist. Uh, Joe Conzo was known as the hip hop photographer. Mm. Like, so these guys were like, you know, legends in my book, you know, and at least to me, as far as I could relate, because I think you can have a lot of mentors in photography, but there's something important about having a mentor you can actually relate to or someone you look up to that you can relate to. So they're Puerto Rican. They were from the Bronx. If they did it, I could do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I remember running up to Bronx documentary center the day they were opening up that show and, Mike Camber was like, it was locked. The gallery was closed, but he was inside filming an interview with one of the television outlets. And he saw me knocking and he had this face like go away at first, you know, but then, but then I kept knocking obnoxiously and he had no choice but to let me in. And so he let me in and I just kind of like hung around and looked at the photos quietly while he interviewed. And, and I guess ever since then, I, I was there for the opening. I, I met the crew. Um, you know, I thought that this was a great space to be around. And I had started to volunteer there my Saturdays and Sundays out of work. And still with insurance at the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I did that for a year. I quit my insurance job, cold turkey. My boss was like, what are you going to do now? And I was like, <laughs> photography. And he was like, photography right you know? it was like this old school conservative type and um <laughs> good luck son <laughs> yeah like um and so i had at that when i quit i had shot my first assignment for the new york times it was a real estate assignment i got the gig just through volunteering at the bdc i guess like the, there was a new editor in the real estate section and she was looking for photographers and and Mike Camber had sent her a few portfolios, including mine. And, you know, I was chosen. Wow. So I worked my ass off on yeah. that first real estate assignment, man. Um, <laughs> Probably shot way too much, right? Way too much. It was it was it was called. Um, so it wasn't just take a photo of a building. It was a real estate column called Living In. And the idea was to show a neighborhood, not just what's being sold, but show us a piece of life of the neighborhood in a slideshow of photographs. Mm. So I was like, I got to produce how many photographs for this slideshow? <laughs> and so it, it was over the weekend. And I remember I would, it was Pelham Bay in the Bronx and I would wake up, take the train, be there by like 6 a.m. and leave at like 7 or 8 p.m. Wow. <laughs> Literally, like I would eat there all my three meals. That way I could visit the restaurants, mm. photograph some of the food. I would meet the people. I would revisit locations at different times just to check on the light. All of these things. Do you remember them running the story then or running yeah. the pictures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That must have been pretty exciting, right? I sat down with Mike and I was like, can you help me edit this stuff and choose the best ones? Right. And so... We did that together. We did the captions together, sent it in. And just like that, I had filed my first assignment. And Cecilia Bohan, uh, she was the editor. She loved it. Oh, great. Um, and that, that must have felt pretty good, right? Yeah, that got my foot in the door into yeah. doing more living in assignments that were very, um, very, they were like, they, they, they were cool because you get to explore different parts of New York City, but they were also pretty tedious and hard mm -hmm. work. They were hard work. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, 
I, I it definitely kind of like trained me in a sense. To it's be such able an op- to, open-ended idea. I mean, go to a neighborhood and te- you know photograph what it's like. Right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would uh, I would tackle it by getting establishing shots of the neighborhood, iconic locations, uh, restaurants, uh, parks. I would hang out with the residents at the parks, parks community spaces where people come together. Mm. Um, they wanted to get you know people in the images, and I would just try to look for little pockets of life. You know. So you beat so. You become more involved then with the Bronx Documentary Center over time? Yes. One thing I realized that was critical is that my skills completely, my skill completely blossomed after I quit my full-time job because you really have to do this full-time um, to be the photographer you want to be. Mm-hmm. You have to give it your full focus. I mean, it's it's... It's a profession, and a lot of people treat it like a hobby, which is uh, okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. But um, listen, if everybody who thought themselves a photographer did it full time and <laughs> all in, we would be uh, we we would drown in a sea of uh, photographers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it takes full attention energy to just think what's important to you. Just answering that question alone is, mm-hmm. you know. So I, you know, I quit my insurance job. I cashed out my 401k, Wow, which a lot of people would think is completely crazy, but I needed a buffer for like two or three months. Right. So I already had an assignment with the times, but I needed to build a network of places I can work for. <laughs> yeah. So part of, part of my cash from the 401k, I went to, uh, I used for a photo for, to visit the photo journalism festival visa pour l'image and Perpignan, France. Oh, wow. Because I had heard about it through the Bronx Documentary Center and all the photojournalists that like circulated through there. And I kind of just wanted to go to just learn and see work and get away from the city for a bit and um, and establish contacts out there as well. And that was really helpful and kind of just getting me started. So fast forward, I just kept working as a freelancer, I would go to the New York Times like once a week, twice a week, even if they didn't want me there. I would <laughs> I would just buzz in and, you know, try to find someone I knew who would let me in. And yeah. and I would just go back to the desk and just say what's up to the editors. Like, hey, what's up? How you doing? Like, you know, when you make small talk when you're in the office? Yeah. Like, I would just do that, you right. know. And sometimes I would make conversation more than small talk and other times not. But they were seeing me and that would that would get them to think more frequently of me for assignments and stuff. <laughs> um, so that's how I got my foot in the door for the Metro section, you know, mm-hmm. shooting a lot of, um, a lot of more city centric stories. After a year of doing that, I, I was assigned to work on a very specific story with the New York times, which was the murder in the four O series. And it was about a year long look at every homicide that happened in the 40th precinct in the Bronx. Wow. And that was a really cool story because it was a team of like six or seven reporters and two photographers, me and Angel Franco. Oh, wow. (laughs) So you can imagine how hyped I was. And that body of work really taught me a lot about covering um, stories where people are, you know, really coping with the death or the, the death of a loss of a loved one and how to approach the, the work in a sensitive nature and not in a competitive, I'm trying to get the best photo nature. In that project, I was cursed out. I was anything that can happen to like a crime 
news photographer. I went through it and I learned and I grew from it. I remember one time I was like kicked out of a funeral and I felt awful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wasn't being too intrusive at the funeral. I had a little tiny point and shoot camera in my pocket, just trying to get a wide shot of the room. Um, the wrong person saw me. Uh, yeah. Wasn't even like a big time, a big family member of the victim, but just someone, right, just someone saw me the and they started bugging out and it just completely ruined the moment. And I ended up getting kicked, escorted out <laughs> and I just felt awful. And that's when I called on hell and I was like, you know, this is just too much. Like, why do this if this is what we have to go through? Like, the reason I got into this line of work, photojournalism, was because we want to engage with people in an intimate way and be gentle and sensitive in telling their stories. And and um, and he just gave me a few pointers and tips of advice. You know, mm-hmm. he said, um, he said, next time you go through something like this, one, make your presence known. Let people know that you're there. And that you're sorry that you have to be there, but it's your job. Find the family, give them your condolences, and let them know that the only reason you're there is because you don't want that story to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And he was like, and that might work. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That That's might right. work. That might work. Right. <laughs> um, and and it, it worked for a lot of the other, because there was, I don't know, I think there was 16 homicides in that precinct mm. that year. That worked for a lot of stories was just like, okay, just trying to step back from working as a journalist and actually talking to people. Right. Not taking the camera out um, and being patient. So how long how long were you then doing the the freelance work in New York? Almost three years. Okay. Yeah. And and I think the um, three years. Yeah. The story that gets most mentioned in relationship to you is the ProPublica uh, ProPublica Daily News sort of joint story yep. on uh, the evictions, right? The uh, nu- called Nuisance Abatement Program. Yep. So I had finished up, I, I had just about finished up a year. I don't know if I was working on the two stories concurrently. Oh, the 4 um, story and the this story? The story and the ProPublica. Oh, I was wow. out there. Yeah, yeah. Like I was like... <laughs> I was like, a, I was living on the streets practically. <laughs> like I had an apartment with my roommate and right. my girlfriend at that time, but I was like living on the streets, always shooting film too. I always had, I always had a little, I had a full frame Nikon with a 24 to 70 uh-huh. in my backpack and like a little Leica M7 wrapped around in there as well. And just those two cameras is all I needed. One had a 35, the other one had a 2470. Uh-huh. Um, and for fancy crime scenes, I would whip out the 70 to 200, you know, less is more. Yeah, less is absolutely. More. So yeah, I, that same year, that summer I had applied for a fellowship program with, um, with, uh, the CUNY school of journalism, the graduate school of journalism, mm. um, through the Knight foundation. Oh, okay. And that's how I got my fellowship at ProPublica. Ah. You know, nobody knew about ProPublica at the time. They right. were still like a small, I mean, people who were in journalism knew about it. Yeah. But most yeah. people didn't know about it. They were still like very small, you know, and I was, I, I was excited about it, but I was nervous in that I would just get lost amongst all the writers writing incredibly long stories and there would be nothing for me to shoot. I think when Um, ProPublica started up, the thought was organizations like that were replacing newspapers and the old news organizations. Yeah. Yeah. But they both existed. I mean, they both survived. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. 
but yeah, I so for the ProPublica nuisance abatement story, I was the lead photographer. I worked closely with um, with uh, the reporter Sarah. Um, literally, I would do Spanish interviews and translation and go door to door knocking in the projects, trying to find family members who you know, were evicted or baited from their homes because of certain drug charges. And um, it was it, it was like a, I think it was like seven months of working on that project. Mm. And that was Sarah Riley. Yeah. Sarah Riley, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah that was, it's an, in, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very pro-public a story in that you have to really read the whole thing. Like you have to, yes. it's a complicated story. And it gets, the thing, the, the great thing with their stories is that there's more and more as you go. Mm-hmm. And it hits you in different angles and different yeah. capacities. And it's like, oh. Yeah, that, so this nuisance, nuisance abatement program basically is, you know, uh, if there's any hint, any suggestion of crime, you can be evicted from your premises. And, it, and this has this snowball effect of just making these lives worse. Uh, you know, instead of, you know, in, you know, where these people are and sometimes in public housing and all, or in public housing where they're, you know, it's supposed to help them make their lives better. Correct. And, and things just get worse and worse. And it was, it's a very dated law. It's a Mm -hmm. law that went back to, um, a time in New York when prostitution, um, was a big issue in Midtown and Times Square. And they needed to literally evict these, they needed to free these places right. that were troublesome that, that may have been used for prostitution that may have been crack dens that may have been other things right correct um and so i remember the first series of story stories once we published that the first series of stories started coming out it was getting the city council's attention it was going to change the law i'm like wow this is amazing i was just a part of a story that changed the law and um and then when the pulitzers were being announced later that year i was like okay <laughs> it, I'm either crossing my fingers for the murder, the I'm crossing my fingers for the murder in the 4.0 series right. <laughs> that I was working on, or this nuisance abatement ProPublica story I was working right. on. Right. When I found out that the nuisance abatement story won a Pulitzer Prize, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I mean, because you're still fairly new to all of this, and very here you new. are working on this Pulitzer-winning story. Yeah. Yeah, it was incredibly like empowering and humbling and. Um, and I felt like I didn't deserve it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. so I kind of, I didn't market it as much when it first happened on Facebook. (laughs) You're almost embarrassed to talk about it. I was kind of like, yeah, it's like maybe they call it imposter syndrome, you know? (laughs) Right. Um, when you get a lot of like awards and accolades for stuff and you're like, well, I'm just trying to do my job kind of thing. And I'm just, I'm kind of just starting out. I'm not like a long time veteran in journalism, you know? Um, so it. Yeah. Yeah. When it came out, I was super excited. I was happy. I, I found like I hit the gold mine without wanting to hit the gold mine. <laughs> um, and I didn't want it. And I felt like I was uh, like almost embarrassed because mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I wasn't in the game for a long time, you know? Um, but yeah. at the end of the day, like I spoke to, you know, a few, like I, David Gonzalez from the times was like, you know, you need to own this and just feel empowered and just, enjoy the moment and, you know, be a part of it, take part in it. So, um, that was, that was very cool because I think one thing with photographers of color and minorities and people who are just starting up, um, it was, it was, it was tough. Like this idea of imposter syndrome and I've never actually spoken about it in an interview, but the idea of having a lot of success early on in your career and stuff, like I worked really hard in those 
it was three years, but well, technically it was five years because I was shooting every day while I was in insurance, but some might not count that. I've, I, <laughs> at this point, I've been shooting for 10 years, but right. at that time, I've been shooting for like five years. And I'd say three and four of those years was like incredibly concentrated shooting in an almost grad school like experience through the Bronx Documentary Center. Like, yeah, that place was a boot camp. Um, they had photographers, you know, from all over coming in, talking to us every Friday night. We would get together, pull down the projector, uh, <laughs> critique each other's photos, enjoy a couple of beers. And it was like a healthy competitive environment that like really pushed me to like become develop my visual literacy. Yeah. Um, and that's the only way you like survive as a freelancer in the New York Times too. Like they have so many talented photographers. You literally work so hard and um and I'd say that's how I got better was through hard work. Um I wasn't born with a photo talent. A lot of my photos early on are not very good and <laughs> You know, that's what I appreciate about it is that in photography, you can get better by just working really hard at it um, and taking breaks and taking hiatuses and then coming back and working harder at it. Well, like you said, you're you're a degree in American studies and, you know, being at the Bronx Documentary Center and um, your life experience is feeding into your work. Then, but you also, you know, grew up in the Bronx, right, with yep. your parents and you had that life experience, too. You already... Um, had this, uh, uh, you know, this massive humanity around you <laughs> growing up, this sort of, uh, and then you, this desire to study history and, and study politics and study humanity in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I'm so thankful for my childhood, you know, it's mm -hmm. funny because we grow up wanting to take our, we don't want to raise our kids in these like inner cities and send them to certain schools because we're afraid for them. But your kid will grow um, in so many different environments, and it's amazing how that environment informs them for the future. Um, and I wouldn't take that back. I mean, growing up in the Bronx, I started taking the train to school when I was like 12, mm -hmm. um, the subway. And this was like a 45-minute train ride Yeah, with a connection downtown. <laughs> wow. Wait, where was the school? Um, on 164th and Walton. Oh, wow. So I had to take the four train down to 86th Street uh -huh. or 125th Street and, and then transfer to up. the uptown train <laughs> because I lived in another part of the Bronx oh, that okay. it would just be longer to take a bus from that part right. to that part or try and commute cross Bronx. <laughs> did you, did you mention what your folks do? Did? Well, my mom was a gym teacher, mm -hmm. um, for most of my childhood. A public school gym teacher? Yes, and then she kind of like left that job. She and she started working. At, she lost that job. I forgot what for, but she started working as a home attendant, mm. which was even harder work. My dad was a sanitation. Well, he didn't work for sanitation. He didn't work for the city. He worked for a private company, which didn't pay as well. Oh, um, private carting. Yeah, yeah. Like you know, my father never finished high school had to leave early to help the family find work in Puerto Rico. Um, but he was a chef, a bodybuilder, uh, a carpenter. Oh, wow. He had a lot of amazing crafts, all good, great stuff with his hands and stuff. Mm. Um, and my mother was like the one who went to college. So she was the one who was always pushing me to like, right. you know, study and do better. Huh. Um, and I had an older brother and sister. 
through them i learned the streets you know my brother was one of those kids fighting every day outside um yeah i mean we grew up in hunts point in the bronx Mm. you know you'll hear the stories about the prostitution the crime the drugs the gangs um and you know my brother was out there he went he grew up at that time he was going to public school like I was one of the only kids going like my mom made me go to Catholic school because she already saw how hard public school was for some of right. for my siblings so through my brother I learned a lot of the 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 street smarts right um, right but I guess he was there at a time too where they weren't using knives and guns as much like it was a lot of just like fist fights this is the 90s yeah yeah and as I mean as he got older things got worse you know mm-hmm. um but he was, yeah, he was a big time fighter. Um, he, he, he was like, he was like best friends with the Latin Kings, but wouldn't go into the gang because he didn't want to be in a gang kind of thing. <laughs> and he just avoided, like, just being a part of that. What is, what does your brother do now? He's a firefighter now in the city. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he, he had a huge transformation in his life too, from like just, you know, completely changing his life around and doing the right thing, but. But yeah, he was he he was he was a tough older brother to have. Too. Yeah, like he he taught me how to defend myself in school, and that if I ever I forgot what the mentality was, but he was like, if you ever find yourself, you know, you get into a fight, just um, you know, just like defend yourself, try to do the right thing. But if you just get bullied and you let yourself get bullied, get ready. Because when you come home, I'm going to bully you too. (laughs) (laughs) If you get beat, I'm going to beat you. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of like the the, the Bronx childhood. Um, Right. And your sister? My sister, she, you know, she was, I, I can't remember much about. Is she the oldest? She's the middle child. Oh, okay. Yeah. She was just very trendy into the beepers. And <laughs> did she stuff. go to the same school as you? Or did school. No, she went to the same school as my brother. Oh, okay. And yeah. she did but he always looked out for her. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What um, does she do now? My sister has a daughter, um, and she's just doing the mom thing. Now. Uh-huh. Yeah. In New York? or In New York. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, I, you did a, a series called Mi Familia, Mi Barrio, right? Yep. And the, the, you tell some Great stories. Great segue. Man, you're good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> You tell some stories about the passing of your grandmother who had Alzheimer's and then the passing of your grandfather, like right after that, I think. Right. And then during all this, your father has a a heart attack or your father has a. Yep. So I so before I became a freelancer and I got into, you know, the whole photojournalism career thing, I had taken a few well even in college for some of my classes I would take photos of my family and my professor always told me that you know my best work was my was the portraits of my family and that kind of stuck with me and I later on I took a class with Maggie Stieber and you know seeing her work with her mother um, just opened my eyes to like the importance of trying to tell my story as well not just telling other stories but mm. opening up you know my eyes to what was happening around me and documenting my family's um story yeah it's a journal right it's I mean, a journal it's, it's writing it's text and photographs yeah yeah and um you know i i still need to put that together i want to make a book for them mm-hmm. you know like not a book that i like sell out but mm-hmm. a book just for us to have and i guess 
that was a three-year project while I was working in insurance, while I mm. was going to the BDC. Um, I would just try to find ways to like reconnect with my family because it was very divided. My parents split up. They split up divorced when I was like 12. Oh, um, okay. And my sister chose to stay with my dad. I went with my mom and my brother was old enough. He kind of had his own thing. On going his own. On. He was a paramedic then at that point. And I, he was in 9-11 actually. Hmm. And I remember him bringing back this disposable Kodak camera after covering 9-11. After working as a paramedic there, he had pictures. And he took some photos on this I camera. developed it. I, we got it developed and I was just like... Oh, looking wow. at all these like 9-11 images of the streets completely covered in ash covered and, in ash yeah. and you know that mm. that kind of inspired me for like future breaking news photographer stuff yeah um yeah. is is his health okay he's good he was a paramedic so he wasn't as close as some of the firefighters were then mm-hmm. it's not so now now he's a firefighter so right right god forbid anything happens he's going in yeah, <laughs> yeah he works yeah. right out of the lincoln center opera area so you um you you said your parents split up and so you you were with your mother yep yeah and your sister uh stayed with your father and then um uh is that when your mother sent you to the catholic high school yep spent a lot of time with my mom saw what a single working mother has to go through um she paid the way for high school catholic high school which Mm -hmm. is like a couple thousand a year yeah expensive in new york yeah um and so she just made a lot of sacrifices to make sure that I had the best education possible. Hmm. Um, so when I got a full leadership scholarship to Colby, she was just breaking down in <laughs> tears and like very happy. And finally, all her work was paying off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that looked me familiar. And the diaspora is it's a, it's a look at several years of documenting my family in the Bronx, well, everything that we were going through, mm-hmm. um, visiting El Barrio in Puerto Rico, where my grandmother and my uncle and the rest of my family was, right. engaging with the residents there, um, and just collecting those images as a catalog for for myself, but other Puerto Rican youth and families to be able to look at and relate to and say, hey, Puerto Rican people are going through a lot, you know, whether it's issues of diabetes, Alzheimer's, you know, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother as she was going through Alzheimer's, Mm. you know, there's, there's a lot of things happening here and it's okay because when we look at on Facebook and Instagram, we only see the good stuff. We don't see the personal tough everyday stuff that people are going through. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was a very humbling project to work on. And one of my favorites, it's important to work on something that's very close to you Mm -hmm. to really appreciate the story you tell for others. Yeah. And the, the Palante, was that work you were also doing at the similar time or is that earlier work? So, no, that's a later work. The Palante series was done in conjunction. So that was in, during my freelance years and I was working as, a, I had a gig working as an editor at large for the Ground Truth Project. Oh, Which okay. is a blog focused on training you know, the younger generation journalism. You got a grant, right? And sharing stories. Um, no, I was part of the staff. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. They it, give it was grants, like a part-time though, gig. Um, yeah, they do give grants oh, as well. Oh, okay. 
Yeah. Um, so I was in charge of like editing and putting together the emerging photographer series. So I did that for like a year and a half. And they would also commission me to like work on certain stories. And, and that your, I think uh, your work was described as photographing the millennial Puerto Ricans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was it was right at the um, it was right at the time that the economic depression at Puerto Rico was at its highest. Mm. Um, and I had pitched them on the idea of going to the island and working in the Bronx to photograph the Puerto Rican diaspora, those who were leaving and coming here and um, and young millennials who were staying on the island and choosing to stay and why they were staying. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some, with that, some of the amazing ideas that they had and how to bring the, the island back to life and, and make it better and stronger. So that was like a commission slash personal project. I was experimenting with Hasselblad and two and a quarter. This was after I shot the Jerome Avenue workers project with the Bronx Documentary Center. So I had a good foundation in working with the Hasselblads and doing portraiture. So yeah, that's that's how the Palante project. The um, and Palante meaning like oh yeah like like Palante means forward, moving forward. Oh okay. Um, and it was it was a it, it's not an actual term in the Spanish dictionary. It was coined um, in New York City in the seventies by the young. Uh, in the seventies or earlier by the young lords. Really? Um, so it's a slang like, term. That was yeah, it's a slang term. It's just saying you know we're moving forward despite everything bad that's happening around. Oh, you. okay. Was a, a tribute to the South Bronx? Was that kind of a farewell thing you did? A tribute to the South Bronx, man. I don't know if I think about it as a farewell and mm. that I moved out, but it was. <laughs> I guess it's a tribute to the South Bronx identity and its history, but mm-hmm. also rec- like in the present day. So yeah. I'm shooting black and white, 35 millimeter film. Some people would look at it and say these photos look old school. They do. You know, those were yeah, yeah. that was like the common consensus. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And in that sense, it was a tribute to just the the catalog of identity and and pride and mm-hmm. history of the Bronx, but just adding to it. You know, right. um, it was a way of looking at some of the photographers I looked up to, like you know Ricky Flores, Joe Conzo. Mm-hmm. Um, on Hal Franco, the old photos they've taken in the 70s and 80s and showing it now in the present day and saying, hey, this stuff is still here. Our culture is still proud and strong. And like, this is it. Also, it it demonstrates how how so many other neighborhoods in New York City have changed dramatically. And the South Bronx, the the photos look older, the photos that you made, because the South Bronx looks older because it hasn't changed so dramatically. It's I, I like to say I... I was photographing the Bronx before it starts to change. That's you right. Know, with the whole right gentrification before. stuff. Right. Before they start cleaning up all the streets. And like, and I think that the Bronx right now is like one of the last authentic boroughs in New York City because you can still go there and see so many different diverse groups. And, and I think the, the hope is, and I, you know, I spoke to Michael Camber a little bit about this, is that um, it's done more carefully the changes where it doesn't displace the people who've been living there forever. You know, it doesn't change the character of the neighborhood so much that you don't recognize it anymore. And being one of the last places to change, maybe it will be handled better. Right. Correct. Yeah. But but you Um, don't know. (laughs) You really don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, that, that was kind of like one of the results from working on the Jerome Avenue workers project. Mm-hmm. Um, we put the project together. We got the attention of CASA, which is a resident housing activist 
group, they pushed on City Hall to say, hey, you guys need to make sure that whatever change does happen does have also benefits the residents. Doesn't push people here. out. Yeah. So, you know, with the Jerome Avenue Workers Project, it's a it's a two mile strip under the four train um, that was going to be rezoned from commercial where it is now to residential. So a lot of the mom and pop businesses that are there are going to be gone. And mm-hmm. some people don't think that's a big deal, but Jerome Avenue has been known for mechanic shops and hair salons yeah. and, um, for decades. Right. Well, and they so, did it when they built the new uh, city field, right? Jay Stadium. Right. They, so it, it's yeah. not just a matter of moving the businesses. There's a lot of goodwill that's going to be lost there. There's mm-hmm. like people who live in really rich neighborhoods in the suburbs and Yonkers who know to stop by Jerome if they want to pick up a cheap flat tire, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so it's that kind of goodwill um, in terms of business that they've built. Yeah. So, so then when do, you, um, when do you start working for Mayor de Blasio? How did that happen? Oh, this was around 2016. Was it 2016? 2016 was a big year for me. It has me. to be, right? Yeah, yeah. It was 2016. <laughs> huge year for me. Um, I w- just finished the ProPublica piece. Right. Um, we were in the process of finishing the Murder in the, Fo- in the, Murder in the 4-0 mm-hmm. series. And I don't know how it happened, <laughs> but I got a phone call. Oh. I got a phone call from Rob Bennett, who he was a photojournalist. He had worked with the Wall Street Journal for a long time, news photographer, full flesh. He's now the director of creative communication. He was the director of creative communications at the mayor's office. Um, And he had reached out and he said, hey, heard about you from some friends on social media. We're going to have an opening on our city hall team as a photographer. You know, would you consider applying? And I called him and I spoke to him on the phone for a long time. And I I was very happy with where I was at as a freelance journalist and that's I was going to ask you about that yeah you know and so I was like uh this kind of came out of nowhere um but at the same time it was a full-time photographer position in a really exciting city with benefits with benefits (laughs) um you can't discount benefits everybody (laughs) (laughs) and so like I had a I had a good conversation with um with Rob and you know he essentially you know, he sold me the job and it was a good job. And, and to this day, I still think it was a great job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the idea that not only documenting the mayoral office and everything the mayor does, but also working on projects that highlight a lot of the city's policies. And so Trump was just becoming president mm-hmm. or he just became president. Took, I was yeah. like angry. Right. Um, I was like, how else can I make a change? And so I saw a way of joining the city hall team and working on projects that I knew were going to get play because they were in within the administration mm-hmm. as a plus. So that job was in completely just invigorating every day. I mean, there's one thing being a freelancer and working full time, but even then you're not shooting all the time. Like maybe you go out shoot for yourself, you shoot an assignment here and there, but like this is bare bones. You work your butt off. I mean, I you have to cover the mayor every single day for every event. He's doing four events a day. Luckily, I was there with another photographer, Ed Reed, who he's been the mayoral photographer now for 25 years. Oh, 26 wow. 26 years. So he's a, a permanent staffer who yes. stays there. He's been there since Koch. Through mayors. That's cr- I didn't know that happened. I thought the mayors always just sort of picked all new people. 
Is that part of like a, a New York City press office kind of, or is it under the mayor's sort of uh yeah it's uh, it's like in the press office mm-hmm. kind of like you know i guess like that role was always seen as a more neutral thing and not so much a right. political thing it's a government new york city government job right, right exactly right. yeah um which is fascinating which is like <laughs> that's the gold right there right <laughs> yeah um <laughs> so that was I, I i really enjoyed that job because i really got to know new york city mm. You know, by commuting very quickly, knowing how to get from point A to point B very quickly, trying to get on time to all the uh, mayor's jo- like events, um, joining him in the motorcade, riding along in his SUVs with his detail, <laughs> everything from being front and center during the ball drop in downtown. Yeah. I'm standing next to Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like the exposure was just so great. And at the same time, the images just kept coming. There's yeah. always really good work that was coming in and not a lot of time for my personal self, but whatever. Right, I right. mean, these are the, that kind of job you kind of, uh, you do it and you just live, you know, and, and, um, live with your camera kind of thing. And then, you know, down the road, you think about how I, you can get more personal work done, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 Which you've done. Um, just to age myself, <laughs> date myself a little bit. I, I actually photographed when Mayor Koch and Al Gore were going around town together campaigning. Oh, wow. <laughs> For president. <laughs> yes. Man, that's, that's great. Black and white photos in the subways with Al D'Amato at, at delis eating corned beef and all kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you can't beat New York City. That's yeah. That's for sure. Yep. Um, so at this point, like, I felt like, all right, I'm on the front seat of New York City pretty mm-hmm. much. The thing with the mayor is that not it's not just events and town halls, breaking news. If there was a, a, a shooting, the mayor was there. If there was a fire, he was there. I would be there like a press photographer with better access. Right, right. I would go into these really heavy meetings where he was there with the, you know, the police commanders and they're making decisions. When the... Chelsea truck attack when the truck terrorist when the attack truck, happened, right 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 I was there you know yeah. um when a lot of like parades honoring NYPD and FDNY happened I was there mm-hmm. and some I was photographing my own brother who was in the FDNY oh that's and right he, he would be a part of like the parade or yeah the funeral ceremony but so the difference um for you is you're not really reporting I mean you're still uh, in some ways doing public relations work right yep. for the mayor but you're in the room where, you know, decisions are being made, but uh, you can't report on them, <laughs> right? Right, right, right. So do, do, you, do you have any sort of, like, longing at that point for, you know, to be on that other side of that rope with the press pool, with the press journalists, or are you pretty happy? No, not at yeah. all. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't really, as a journalist, I wasn't really into, like, politics or covering City right, Hall. Right, right. Like, I was more interested in you know, the stuff that I was covering, which was long form, like homicide stuff. Like, oh, yeah. Like connecting the with investigative stories, the investigative that, yeah, stories. Yeah. Um, so I was never really part of the, the mm-hmm. city hall press corps, nor did I want to be like that stuff from the outside is kind of boring. If you're going to do it, <laughs> might as well do it from the inside. Right. You know? Um, it's still a lot of grip and grin photography, right? <laughs> a lot of grip and grin photography, but it was very cool. And yeah, yeah. I, I'd say just being witness to that. Yeah. You know, one of the things that having Rob as a boss um, for our team was that, you know, I had a lot of confidence in that he was also a photojournalist. Mm. And so just the way we would cover things, 
were tended to be more on the neutral side. We didn't try to like upsell things too much. Oh, okay. Um, we saw our job more as just informing New York City on a person-to-person language of what was happening. It's more city. like a, a document of the time, of the moment. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it was, and I think it still is. Like, a lot of people see it as public relations jobs, but I think that if we think about it that way, we see it as almost like our politicians aren't doing anything mm. and that we're just trying to, like, you know, make them look good and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one humbling thing when I got into government, because I wasn't really a big fan of government when I was working as a freelancer. Like, I was very skeptical of it. Sure. But when I stepped in, I saw the incredible amount of work that went into, you know, de Blasio, his team, mm-hmm. the New York City's mayor's office. Every component of the city was like flowing in and out of there. And it was insane. And it yeah. was overwhelming. And I'm like, oh my God, these people are doing so much work, sacrificing everything. And I mm-hmm. think that's I think that's part of the I saw I see both were, sides of it now, yeah, you know? And so yeah. and so I I have this appreciation for the amount of work. So I don't see it so much as public relations because mm-hmm. in public relations, you're kind of operating under the assumption that, you know, this politician isn't really doing much and you're just trying to make them look good. Yeah. In this sense, it was like, okay, you know, this mayor is doing too much and we're struggling to tell everything effectively to everyday New Yorkers. Like there's way too much going on. Like how do we just report this in a way where it's like neutral and this is how it's helping new yorkers kind of thing yeah yeah and Um, and trying to show people that there is there is something you know that that there's work being done right yeah and i i wouldn't i wouldn't have gone there if i didn't believe in him or any of like you know the political figures that i work with or work for well that that's that actually leads us to then your current job yeah (laughs) how do you go from uh how did you go from de blasio to uh governor murphy so I was, you know, I was working on the inauguration for de Blasio. He was just reelected. I could have easily stood there for another four years mm-hmm. when I had a colleague, you know, stop by my desk and, um, and, you know, just share with me his plans of him going to New Jersey right across the water the water to work with the new governor (laughs) Christie just lost uh murphy phil murphy was coming in and this is what governor murphy stood for and you know he was like i'm looking for a photographer if you know anyone let me know and at that time i was like new jersey i'm not going (laughs) to new jersey i'm staying in the bronx but i i reached out to my friends i did my due digital diligence i was like do we know any good photographers in jersey um that we can get out there and and then I was talking to Ed Reed, you know, the mayor's office photographer who's been there for t- quite a few generations. Right. And he was like, I really like this guy. I like this Murphy guy. He's wearing sneakers. <laughs> That's big. That means he's ready to walk and be on the ground with the people. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the governor, he wears sneakers. You know, he wears Allbirds um, <laughs> almost all the time. I mean, I've seen him with dress shoes, you know, but... Yeah, I guess he, there are some events where you have to put on the dress shoe, right? Yeah, yeah, but not not many. I mean, like he'll he'll wear. It, it, I guess it's not based on importance. It's wow. I guess it's based more on putting aside the whole. You need to wear dress shoes. So Ed Ed convinces you 
to take it? Well, he convinced me like this guy across the water was going to be a good guy, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and then, and then I started doing my research and reading into what he was about. And, yeah. um, and then, you know, when you start to envision yourself in a certain role, mm-hmm. then it becomes more of a so, reality. So I, it actually really makes a lot more sense now. You don't, you don't see yourself as, as the PR photographer. You actually see yourself as, as joining a political team, right? A team that's interested in, in doing some good stuff. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's, becoming more and more i think journalism is still very important in this day um but so is taking action to actually Mm -hmm. do things um behind it and i think that one thing that's informed me is now we need to find ways to truly engage younger audiences to become involved in our democratic system Mm. and voting and a lot of choosing tomorrow's leaders i think that's one thing that gets me excited about you know um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez when she came up is like yeah that movement was all about just like engaging everyday people and this is why voting matters you know I wasn't a big voter when I was younger I or when I was like right out of college you know I thought that my voice didn't matter and I thought that you know the system was corrupt and everything was bound to fail and you know and um, right I just wasn't as well informed and you know now it's really about like just kind of bringing that message to everyone and like saying like choosing tomorrow's leaders is incredibly important and it's one part to take it's one thing to like see the news and complain about it and not do anything and that's how trump became president yeah a lot of people became discouraged and just didn't vote and it's another thing to like actually try and do something about it so yeah now i work with the governor um, in new jersey and i'm the deputy digital director there my job consists of being a photographer, but also writing for Twitter, um, managing live streams and live stream crews. We have uh, these camera crews that work with us to live stream all the governor's events mm. and just make sure that the production's good, mm-hmm. stuff like that. I have like a slightly managing responsibility, <laughs> which is new. And it's cool because I'm growing out of this role of just being a photographer. Mm-hmm which I think is an incredible, tremendous role nonetheless, but... Yeah, you're seeing things with a sort of a, a larger view, a larger lens, so to speak, uh, you know, how everything can come together in this message, right? Yeah, correct. And my first impressions of, of the governor when I first came here was, wow, this guy's really nice. Every time I see him, he looks me in the eyes and shakes my hand. Um, he remembers, he remembered my birthday, texted me <laughs> on my birthday, all little things like that I didn't yeah, get yeah. in the city, you know, and... Yeah. Um, and he's just very, like, I, I respect him. I respect him a lot. And again, I wouldn't be there if I didn't believe in it because mm-hmm. it's why I quit my insurance job a, a couple of years ago because I didn't believe in it. So I'm very optimistic. You know, we even in the short time he's been in office, you know, he's done a lot of really cool things. And the big challenge is kind of undoing like eight years of what Christie <laughs> did. You know, we, we need to fully fund our um, mass transit system and, uh, and fix NJ Transit and bring more engineers. Because right now the shortage is engineers. Right. We don't have and enough staff to run the it's trains. It's a big deal with the, the bus drivers and everything because they, they have to have rest, which is a good thing. We want them to have mandatory rest periods and things like that. And then there aren't enough drivers. It's one of those crazy things. Uh, um, we have one of the busiest public transportation systems in the country, if not the world in New Jersey, and it should be world-class. And, you know, we don't think of these things as needing 
as needing real resources. Like we think, oh, it just runs on its own, right? But right. I mean, you have to invest in these things. You absolutely have to invest. And it's, it's tough because, you know, New Jersey is an expensive place to live. And, you know, taxes are high and property taxes and all. But, you know, we have the best schools, some of the best schools in the country. We have, you know. It's, it's, it's expensive, but it's a good value state. That's what like, I'm saying, right? Like, we have I lived, I lived good in New York services. City, and New York City was expensive, but the quality of life there, that's one thing mm-hmm. I don't. So, I, ever since I moved here, I love New Jersey. Like, I travel all parts mm-hmm. of the state with the governor, and um, I'm still a fan of the inner cities, Camden, Newark, mm-hmm. Trenton because I'm from the Bronx and that will always be in my blood. I don't think I could move out to the suburbs, but to each his own, whoever loves that, great. (laughs) Um, But it's just such a great state. I mean, I didn't know how diverse it was here either. Like I thought it was just, you know, a bunch of white people in suburbs. Um, (laughs) It's, it's an, it's a really interesting state from South to North. It changes dramatically. So diverse. Um, And the people are amazing. And the food, there's a lot of great food. There's a lot of interesting places to visit. I don't even want to go back to New York City that often anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, unless it's to visit family and stuff. Right, or the BDC. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. it's just like, I I, I don't get it. The quality of life, taking the trains on a day-to-day basis, dealing with everything around you. You can't drive, you can't take a cab because it takes longer than taking a train. The prices are so expensive for anything. I mean, and I get why people are there, but there's a lot of more, there's a lot of opportunities and jobs elsewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that it's a problem when every young kid who's graduating from college wants to go to New York City and they're leaving their hometowns and they're leaving all these incredible places. And I'm just like, well, stay where you're at because there's a lot of potential there too. You know, you don't have to come to New York City to like make your dream come true. Yeah, you know, that's part of the mission of, everyday rural America is the idea that, you know, how about, uh, you know, big organizations reach out into the communities to find the photographers there, to find the people, you know, to offer the jobs there instead of everyone just coming to New York and LA to, you know, live and work there and then be sent to rural communities to, to work. Right. Exactly. I mean, there's such a massive amount of wealth in the city and there's very little in other parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's a big problem that's like, you know, broadening the socioeconomic disparities in our country. Um, And I think we would all be better if we empower like our smaller places. This is why I'm in Trenton. This is Mm -hmm. why I'm buying a house in Trenton. You know, it's um, I see like the value here. Um, But I also connect with the community, too, which is important. Yeah. Um, But yeah, working with the governor is great. I mean, we passed $15 minimum wage. Mm hmm which is great. Um, It's one of the steps at just building a stronger middle class, which we've lost. We've provided better paid sick leave hours for families. I know the uh, governor's in a battle right now against the speaker Sweeney on on how to uh, uh, pay for pensions and taxes and things, right? Yeah, well, honestly, it's about the millionaire's tax. Yeah, Um, yeah. The governor wants, the governor is a millionaire saying he wants to tax millionaires just to build a little bit, provide property tax relief, Mm -hmm. provide more funding for education, infrastructure, infrastructure, stuff like that. And, um, it's, it's kind of cool to have one millionaire saying like, this is, this is why this should happen, you know? And 
and have a lot of other millionaires who are also in support of this mm-hmm. um, want it to happen as well. There's actually a lot of millionaires in New Jersey who are like, fine, I'm, I'm okay paying a little bit more mm-hmm. so that everyone is all right. Invest in the state. But yeah. it's all it's it's all politics and, you know, between yeah. the Sweeney and the legislature and all the stuff that's going on there. I feel like um, I, I, I hope we find like a solution that works well for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now you'll you're um, we'll bring it all the way back. So now you're you're the curator, the director of the gallery here at Roebling Works, which is part of, uh, you know, in terms of what we're talking about and building up, um, you know, uh, infrastructure and, and, and being committed to the, uh, the, the urban centers of New Jersey. Roebling Center is this beautiful place, right? The, the Roebling Works is yeah. beautiful so lofts. And yeah, we're in the Roebling lofts, which is located inside one of the main buildings where the Roebling company made their wires that are yeah. on the Brooklyn Bridge, exactly. the Golden Gate Bridge on a lot of major bridges throughout our country were made in this building. That alone was like a seller for me when I was looking at this uh-huh. <laughs> um, and moving in. Beautiful loft buildings. Literally, I have a, a two-bedroom, you know, like palace compared to the, <laughs> for the same price of something I would pay for in the city um, for like a one-bedroom. Yeah, it's really amazing. There's this uh, beautiful loft space up top and, and the, we're sitting in this incredibly well-lit dining room with giant windows. Everything, so much of it is solar-powered, <laughs> yeah. you know, my... My electric bill is like 60 bucks a month. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like you can't uh, you can't beat it, you know. Um, oh, man. Yeah, there's a ton of solar <laughs> panels on the roof. Um, but, yeah, this is part of, like, you know, cities like Trenton that were once, you know, some of the country's greats in terms of industry and production. You know, the, the slogan here is Trenton makes, the world takes, mm-hmm. because we made so much rubber, you know, China, metal, um, that went to different parts of the country. Um, so there's a lot of housing stock, a lot of factory stock to be redeveloped and rebuilt in New Jersey, like alone, you know, oh, even yeah. Patterson and yeah. Camden. I mean, there are, there are places um, like Hoboken and Jersey city that had New York as a sort of, um, a focus, you know, uh, you know, it could attract businesses, it could attract people to move there because of its proximity to New York. Um, and it, it hasn't been, and, and even Newark, you know, has had some of that too, because it's, it's close enough and all. And it also has its own sort of financial center. And Trenton has had a harder time, you know, rebounding. Trenton has had a harder time in, uh, finding investors and, and attracting people to, to come here, you know, because it's, there's no now inherently kind of resource, you know, like, a, you know, uh, um, attraction or, or point of focus for people to come here. Well, I mean, there's a few pretty exciting things going on in Trenton. Um, oh, I think I think in, in this iteration of a revival of the arts and housing, it's it's the best I've seen just in my short 15 years of working at Mercer. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think I think the city is definitely at a tipping point. You know, Art All Night, the art festivals, Trenton Artworks. Um, we just finished Taste of Trenton, which was a restaurant food crawl. Mm-hmm. The Trenton Punk Rock Flea Market, which is a major venue that attracts people from Philly and all the surrounding cities. Absolutely. The Thunder Stadium that's owned and managed by the New York Yankees are here. Um, the Q Arena right across from us hosts a lot of WWE matches. It's an interesting city with battle reenactments. You yes. Know. <laughs> um, that are really well done mm-hmm. and really mimic the the significant battle that changed the Revolutionary War and founded this country. 
and there's just like a lot of beautiful like uh you know aisles is a nonprofit that oh, does a lot is of the best we restoring and mm-hmm. you know um community gardening yeah and the trenton area soup kitchen is also a fantastic organization and exactly um but just like any yeah. city we have you know there's there's like an opioid epidemic issue mm-hmm. um there's like a gang issue but apparently now it's all about different neighborhoods and i think that that can all be fixed by addressing education and policing mm-hmm. and jobs. I it think al- it also one of feels th- like, I don't know. You can tell me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this, or you're a little more plugged in. I feel like there's more, a little more political stability today than there has been in a long time. Mm. Like politically, it seems a little calmer, right? Less, um, well, I don't know, corrupt maybe. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> there's, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, well, we don't have a corrupt mayor this that's time, right. I guess. There's that's no, important. There's no big st- crazy stories happening right now right yeah <laughs> and thank god you know yes, i mean yes so yeah the city's definitely headed in a in a good direction i think one thing we need is just more jobs mm-hmm. like we need more corporate jobs to come in right. set foot hire local but hire people outside um no no one's getting displaced anytime soon so gentrification is something we would have to worry about further into the future. Yes, not a worry right now. It's, right, it's, a, right. it's a city that a common, I mean, gentrification is the displacement of people. And Trenton at one time accommodated for a population of 122, mm. 25. Right now we're like at 65. Right. So, so there's, there's plenty room. of more people that can move in here. There's and room. Yeah. Yeah. There's room to grow. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's a, a good place to end on. Are you getting, uh, getting more of your own work done again? Yes. Um, honestly, you know, it's been incredibly difficult to get out my work for this current show, Trent Town, mm-hmm. um, and work at the governor's office. But I think it's, I find it important. And I think in no matter what job, I think no matter what job I have and I'm doing, I will always be shooting my personal documentary projects or art projects or whatever. Right, just, right. Just shoot your own thing. Um, yeah. And, and do it for just the sake of, you know, your art form and your craft. And it's it's important to stay on top of that. Well, that's a good place to wrap up on. <laughs> well, thank you very much for inviting me to your home, your beautiful home, for a little while longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.